Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Hello? Is this the mic? Hello? Hello? Is it on? I don't think it's on. Testing, testing, testing. Hello, hello everybody, we're about to start. Hello, Uh, good evening. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB, uh, which is going on many years now. No one can see me, you're in the way. It's all right, no one cares, but I can't, well, I'm wearing heels. That's as tall as I get. <laughs> um, uh, we've been going, you know, anyway, thank you for coming. Most of you are familiar faces, which is great. Sorry for the heat, although I feel air conditioning, which is great. Uh, we have two wonderful readers tonight. Is that my camera? Yes. Oh, I can delete it then. It's revenge. <laughs> it's revenge. But I can delete them all if I want. <laughs> all right, anyway. Um, tonight we have two wonderful readers. Well, before I start, I'd like to thank um, the people who supported our Kickstarter several years ago. You know, uh, several, a couple of months ago, which will keep us going for five years at least. Uh, thank you, everybody. And we thank um, Word Books for selling. Eileen's book will be back there. Her collection that she's going to be reading from is back there, I believe. Yes. And. Uh, and Paul Whitcover has his books here. He will be selling, I'm not sure which book. What's the title? Emperor of All Things. Emperor of All Things. He'll be s- Yes. Yeah, finally. Okay. Well, that's good that it was in hardcover for a long time. Okay. Anyway, um, our first reader tonight is Eileen Gunn, who is a short story writer and editor. Um, Questionable Practices, her most recent collection, was published in March. Her fiction has received the Nebula Award in the United States and the Sense of Gender Award in Japan, and has been nominated for the Hugo, the Philip K. Dick, and the World Fantasy Awards, and shortlisted for the James Tiptree Jr. Award. Um, Please welcome Eileen Gunn. Um, I've made a set of bookmarks to go with my book, and they're back there. You don't have to buy a book to get a bookmark, but if you buy a book, you can ask for six bookmarks. And they all have different yeah. quotes on them, so there's a set of six if you collect the whole Are they set. For your book? Yes. Okay, I'm going to read from a, a story called Up the Fire Road, and I'm going to start sort of in medias race. The characters in the story are Christy and Andrea, are the two viewpoint characters, and they've already made their way up the fire road in spring 
in awful skiing conditions, cross-country skiing, and uh, they're <clears throat> in a hot tub or in a in a, a, uh, a an open pool, open hot pool that they've they've left pretty much everything behind. You know, like they didn't bring any food. Um, they got drunk. They smoked dope. They find themselves, you know, three miles up Mount Baker, with with no way to get back. It's dark. They didn't, yeah, they didn't bring a flashlight. Yeah, the cell phone's battery's dead. You know, on and on. And they see a bear, <clears throat> and it turns out to be a person, perhaps. I kept my eye on the figure in the forest. It still looked a lot more like a guy than a bear to me. It came closer. It obviously could see us. It waved a mittened hand and resolved into a guy with a big beard and a fur hat. How you folks doing tonight, it said. What do you know, said Christy, a talking bear. <laughs> then Christy's point, that was Andrea's point of view, Christy's point of view. I met Andrea at Burning Man. She was welding together a giant sheet metal goddess robot with glowing snakes for hair. She was wearing a skirt made of old silk ties and nothing else. No shoes, no shirt. Great service. <laughs> I lost my heart to her. I would do anything she wanted. It's been that way ever since. She wanted a baby and now she's got one. Doesn't need me anymore. Neither of the women do. Her or Mickey. The babies need me though. I'll stand by my kids if their mothers will let me. I'm not going to say that Andrea lies, but what happened to Mount Baker wasn't my fault. I didn't even want to go skiing that day. It was dark and rainy in the morning, and it was a long drive to Mount Baker. That's why we got there so late. She kept changing her mind about going. And if I hadn't been stoned, I wouldn't have misjudged the distance to that hot spring. <laughs> She's always saying that it's my fault when I screw up. Sure, I screw up, but why assign blame like that? <laughs> Everybody screws up. Even Andrea screws up sometimes. That's why I like skiing cross-country. Because when you screw up, you can recover, <laughs> usually. You make more mistakes going cross-country, like finding yourself in the middle of fucking nowhere without a sandwich. But sometimes you get a chance to see stuff that most people in their safe little lives never even dream of. Like the Sasquatch. <laughs> where, where would you ever see a Sasquatch if you didn't go cross-country skiing? Or a talking bear either, for that matter. Whatever. I figured it would calm Andrea down if she thought it was a talking bear, because that's an idea she's familiar with. <laughs> Ursus Fabulans, the talking bear. We all know the talking bear. Even the Romans knew the talking bear. Ursus in tabernum introit et cerveciam imperavit, as the book says. A bear goes into a bar and orders a beer. <laughs> but I knew it was a Sasquatch. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> Mount Baker is, is crawling with them. And I wanted, naturally enough, to find out more. Besides, we were sitting there in the hot spring, facing a long, cold walk back down the side of the mountain to the truck. The Sasquatch asked us, real friendly, how we were doing. I saw no problem with partaking of his hospitality, you know. Maybe the Sasquatch had a nice little cabin somewhere, or a warm cave with a fire already going. Maybe the Sasquatch had a treasure and would bestow it upon us if he took a shine to us. So I said, well, my, man, my, my sister's not feeling so good, and we sure could use a place to sleep tonight. You want any place around here, any place warm? 
India looked at me when I called her my sister, but she didn't say anything about it. She's cool, Andrea. We don't want to tell the Sasquatch our whole story. Everybody needs to keep some truths to themselves. It's the only way. And the Sasquatch invited us back to his place. Polite as can be. Seemed like a good man, this Sasquatch. We leaped up out of the hot spring and got dressed real fast. It was colder now. We were all warmed up, so the hot spring was not a dumb idea, no matter what Andrea thought. Skiing behind the Sasquatch, she gave me a what-the-fuck look. It was so dark, I couldn't see her face, but Andrea can do the what-the-fuck look with her whole body. (laughs) I gave her a shrug that said, later. Of course, Andrea was going to have to rethink what I told her, and she was going to have to ask why, and she was going to have to just fuck with me on it. But she knew enough not to do any of those things while we're following a Sasquatch through a frigid forest in the middle of the night. We skied in the dark for maybe a half hour or so. It was slow going. The Sasquatch, I noticed, had furry webbed feet that worked like snowshoes. Obviously, Sasquatches evolved in the snow like Yeti. That's part of my theory. I'm I'm just learning about this stuff. I found a couple of websites that have been helpful. (laughs) So we were climbing on some kind of a narrow path. Climbing is relatively easy on my mountaineering skis, even without the skins, but going down, you don't have the control you'd have with steel edges. It was steep and icy. I was hoping we could get out of there in the morning without having to sidestep all the way down the side of the mountain. When we came down to to the Sasquatch's cave, it didn't look like there was anything there at all just a wall of granite with a row of dug firs in front of it. But somehow there was a gap in the rock, and the Sasquatch gestured us in. Inside, of course, it was bare ground, so we took off the skis and carried them. No sense leaving them out there, risking that it would snow during the night and cover them up. I've done that. Can you tell? Even if you know exactly where you put your skis, it's scary out in the middle of nowhere. You don't see them. Sasquatch struck a spark and lit a funny little oil lamp, and me and Andrea looked around inside the cave. Back from the mouth of the cave, the ground sloped down, and the roof was higher than I could see in the dark. It seemed big inside, even though we couldn't see. I wonder if humans have some kind of sonar, like bats or dolphins? We followed the wall, and not, and not far from the entrance, we came to a house made of logs and bricks and rocks. We went by several sets of doors and windows, like some old tourist motel right in the cave. We went in one of the doors and entered a big room. The floor was covered with the skins of deer and mountain sheep. No bear skins, I noticed. There was a strong musky smell, like raccoon or bear. Sasquatch, I bet. There was another lamp, and there were big piles of balsam boughs, which I knew were comfortable to sleep on, and they smelled good. The Sasquatch had a pretty nice place. Cold, though. The Sasquatch soon had a little fire going in a fire pot, and there must have been a way for the smoke to get out because the room didn't fill with smoke. There was a pot of water on the fire, and criminy, the Squatch even had a bunch of those heavy handmade pottery mugs, like the kind you find cheap at the Goodwill. But did he carry those things all the way into the woods? Sasquatches shop at thrift stores? <laughs> soon we were drinking fur tip tea, which was good if somewhat redundant in the mountains. After a couple cups of tea, Andrea went outside to take a leak, and I got the Sasquatch alone. I dug in my pack and pulled out the Hennessy, of which there was still a little left. While I was rolling a couple of fat joints, I told the Sasquatch that I thought my sister had the hots for him. (laughs) He took this a good bit cooler than I might have expected. I mean, Andrea is a good-looking woman. 
I wondered what Sasquatch chicks looked like. He was so unimpressed. Or maybe there's just no accounting for taste. I told the Sasquatch that when Andrea came back inside, I could set it up for him with her. I told him this all had to be above board. But I could tell, I said, that he was a stable fellow, solid, responsible, and my sister was ready to settle down and have kids. <laughs> this last part was true, actually. Andrea and I had had the conversation, though we didn't actually come to any conclusion, or, or at least not one that made her shut up about it. <laughs> the Sasquatch just nodded at what I said, and I took this as agreement. We smoked a joint on it. Andrea's point of view. When I came back into the room, the old guy was warming up some kind of soup he's got in a pot near the fire. You folks are probably pretty hungry, eh? He and Christy had been smoking that homegrown Christy carted around with him. Pretty punk stuff. Yeah, I said, we didn't bring much to eat. Well, honey, let me tell you, he patted my shoulder. Left to see him there just a little bit too long, you know. You and your brother shouldn't go off skiing like this without bringing some emergency rations. You're lucky you ran into me. I'll take care of you. Yeah, I, shall. I thought, I I'm sure. But he was nice enough, and the soup was okay. The Lord knows what was in it. Roots and stuff. No meat. There was something potato-like, but it wasn't a potato. I didn't ask, because I didn't want to make the old guy feel bad. I've eaten a lot of weird stuff. A little more wouldn't hurt me. He had those handmade wooden bowls to eat out of. I'd seen bowls like that before. Very rustic, kind of zen, you know? I, I took some meditation classes in Berkeley, and the monks, they had bowls kind of like that. The cave was warming up a bit from the fire, but I wouldn't have called it warm. The old guy noticed I was shivering and put an arm around me. Christy moved away. Bastard. What's your name, I asked. He said something, but I didn't catch it. It came out kind of funny, like he was clearing his throat at the same time. What? I said. Call me Mickey, he said. Like the mouse, I asked. Like the mouse, he said. After supper, I left Christy and the old man talking and lay down on a pile of balsam branches. I was tired, and it was soft and kind of cozy. In the middle of the night, I heard a noise in my sleep, and I opened my eyes. Was it a noise I dreamed or a noise in the real world? It took me a while to wake up. The oil lamps were out, but the fire was still burning, and by its dim light, I could see the old man moving across the room. He was wearing some kind of a tall hat. Other people came up behind him. It was very dark and shadowy and completely silent. I wondered a bit if I was dreaming, but it didn't seem to be a dream. Where was Christy? He wasn't next to me. One of those people looked like him. I got up from the pile of branches and slipped my boots back on. I stood there in the dark, very quietly, thinking they couldn't see me. The old man came closer to me, and the group moved with him. Yes, I was Christy there in the tall hat. The people moved so strangely that like they weren't used to walking upright, and the cave was so dim, lit with a faint orange glow that seemed to come from within the people themselves, that I thought again that it was a dream. They were carrying ropes of twisty brown vines with yellow and orange berries on them, like swags of tinsel from a Christmas tree, and they encircled me, looping, vines of, looping strands of vines over my head. It wasn't scary, though. It was like an interesting slow-motion dream. I felt that I could duck out of the vines and run away if I wanted, or wake up from it, but I didn't want to. The berries seemed to give off a dim light, and I was able to see better, like my eyes were getting used to the dark. The people were all dressed in rags that looked like dead oak leaves. Their garments fluttered, although there was no movement of, of the air. 
I tried to talk to them, but they didn't seem to understand what I was saying. I'm not sure there was any sound coming out of my mouth. The visitors looped the vines around me and Christy and the old man and pulled them tight, bringing us closer and closer until we were bound together as if we were all sticks in a ball of twine. Then suddenly, as if a bubble had popped, the room was dark again. The visitors disappeared, and then the orange berries went out quietly one by one, and the vines bound us less and less until they were gone. We sank onto the balsam boughs, Christy on one side of me and Mickey on the other. Christy fell asleep right away. I was feeling dizzy, but I wasn't falling asleep. It was like being stoned. Maybe because I'd been asleep already, Mickey was, Mickey was staring at me intently. He didn't seem so much like an old man, just another human being who was concerned about me. I'm okay, I said, I'm just out a bit out of breath. He ran his hand down the center of my back to just below my waist and pulled me towards him. He kissed me very lightly on the lips and I could feel my whole body respond to those two points of contact, his hand and his lips. Now he didn't seem like an old man at all. In Christie's point of view, I can tell you that nobody was more surprised than I was to find out that the Squatch was a girl. <laughs> How could I have thought that the Squatch was a bear or an old guy? It must have been some trick of the light, but she had looked like a guy. How was I to know? And of course, when I found myself in bed with this beautiful girl, what could I do? I was putty in her hands, just like with Andrea. Obviously, she had targeted me right from the beginning there at the pool. She didn't say anything about that, but she didn't have to. I could tell. So Mickey was there. She was willing, and I was certainly able. That was just how it goes sometimes. The right moment, the right two people. Andrea was asleep next to us, but I knew that this was okay, that she wouldn't wake up. I mean, she was out cold. All I can say is we had a blast. Mickey was hot. She was juicy. She was gorgeous. And boy, did she give good head. Afterward, when all the other people appeared, it was strange but familiar to get up and join them. Mickey gave me a tall hat. It was sort of a wedding, I think, but not, I'm not 100% a cooperative bridegroom. I just walked around in a fog. And then Andrea woke up, and she walked around too, with me and with Mickey, and I thought that made everything okay, the three of us being together like that, I mean. Andrea must have known but when, when she woke up and saw us, but I thought, what would Andrea do now that Mickey and I had this thing going? The other people, they had ropes of bittersweet, which I thought was odd. I'd never seen real bittersweet in the Northwest. They have something up here that they call bittersweet, the stuff with the little purple flowers and the red fruit, but I call it nightshade. When I grew up, the bittersweet was, where I grew up, the bittersweet has orange berries with little yellow shells that cover them. Beautiful, but it strangles everything that comes near it. My mom used to have me busting my butt out there in the back field, cutting bittersweet away from the trees because it would just take over, climb all the trees and overwhelm them. It was real pretty in the wintertime, though, with the yellow and orange berries sticking up from the snow. So I loved seeing those people with the bittersweet vines, even though I knew that if it took hold, they'd never get rid of it. Andrea was dancing faster and faster, sort of pulling us along in this frenzy. The visitors roped her in with the bittersweet, her and me and Mickey all together until we, until we fell on the bed of balsam branches, all hot and sweaty. And I had a brief thought that maybe we could get a threesome going, but I was getting a heart on and, and then I was coming and falling into a deep sleep at the same time. You know, a lot of that night is just a blur to me. That, that was some weed, I tell you, I, I don't remember anymore. The next morning, this rivers were like old married people, chewing on roots around the fire, eating some kind of a porridge of seeds. 
Andrea and Mickey, they seemed pretty friendly in spite of what went on last night. So things were okay in that area. I didn't, I didn't notice the musky smell anymore. Probably that's what I smelled like myself at this point. There was a thing about caves that I actually hadn't thought through. They're dark. <laughs> if you stay in your cave, the sun might as well never have come up. I needed to get out of the dark, get outside, take a dump, and prepare for a long ski out, maybe through the woods the way we come up. I hoped there was a forest road nearby, but my guess was the Sasquatch was a deep woods guy, as far from civilization as he could get. And we needed to get going pretty soon, too. So I put on my park and went out the mouth of the cave, and you know what? It was raining, raining hard. Water was flowing in the snow, down the slots of our tracks, down the slope of the mountain, down through the trees, down to the hot spring, down to the road, which was, by my guess, a couple thousand feet below us. Staying over had not been a very good idea if getting home was the goal. But I'll tell you what I do when something doesn't work out. I go with the flow. I let life keep happening. I keep an eye out for opportunity. And to my mind, the opportunity at this point was to find out about the treasure. <laughs> Easiest thing would be to get, into, get info directly from Mickey, not poke around in acres of rock. Might involve smoking a few more joints, a bit more bonding. I could handle that. Andrea would find something to keep her busy. Andrea. Mickey wasn't bad in bed. He was younger than I thought, and he gave good head. He was a lot gentler than Christy, too. Christy likes it kind of rough and fast. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but Mickey was a gentleman and quite attractive in a way. Kind of hairy, though. Some, some guys are just like bears if they don't wax it all off. But I never slept with a guy who was as hairy as Mickey. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. So you can thank, you can read that story, the whole of it, in uh, Eileen's book. It's in the new book, right? Yes. Yes. Questionable practices. Yes. Please buy it. Have Eileen sign it for you. And uh, we'll take a 10-minute break and have a drink. Thank you. How's everybody doing? Thank you. Glad you like my shirt. My shirt thanks you. So, uh... Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matt Kressel, and I co-host this series with Ellen Datlow. And it's held on the third Wednesday of every month here at KGB Bar. It's always free. All they ask is that you have a drink. Stay hydrated. Even if you don't drink alcohol, get a soda. Say hello. Tip your bartenders and all that stuff. Uh, before we go on with our next reader, Paul Whitcover, I just want to uh, talk about our upcoming readers for the next couple months. Next month, July 16th. Victor Laval and Sophia Samatar. August 20th, Karen Hewler and Veronica Shanus. September 17th, Leanna Renee Heber and Mary Robinette Cole. October 15th, E. Lily Yu and Genevieve Valentine. Question mark? She may not be able to no, make it. Not. Oh, she's making it. Okay, so she'll be here. Forget that. Scratch that. There's a, yes, there's still a question mark next to her name. November 19th, Nancy Kress and Jack Skillingstead. Wow. December 17th, Rajan Khanna and a guest, TBA, our favorite guest. January 21st, Andy Duncan, Gregory Frost. February 18th, Mike Allen. 
March 18th, Lisa Minetti. April 15th, Ken Liu and Isabel Wiltz. Oh, no, Isabel is a question mark. Isabel is a question mark. She is not a question mark. Her attendance is, is a question mark. Uh, May 20th, Fran Wilde. And June 17th, Simon Strances and Michaela Rosner. Did I pronounce that correctly? It's also a question. Michaela, thank you. So, we'll hope you can join us for uh, those upcoming readings. Um, um, so, uh, as Ellen mentioned, uh, books for sale. Books are for sale in the back. We have Word Bookstore in the back selling Eileen Gunn's Questionable Practices. And uh, up here, Paul, after his reading, will be selling uh, his, his novel, uh, Emperor of All Things. So uh, come up, uh, buy a book, get them signed. Uh, our next reader is Paul Whitcover. His fiction has been the finalist for the Nebula World Fantasy and Shirley Jackson Awards and has been shortlisted for the James Tiptree Award. His most recent novel, The Emperor of All Things, you want to hold that up so people can look at the awesome cover, uh, is, for, uh, is out now, and the forthcoming sequel eternally is called Eternity in Love. He lives in Brooklyn. Here's Paul Whitcomb. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. A uh, special thank you to my sister, who is actually hearing me read for the first time. Uh, you know, at my childhood, I was a little slow, and I didn't read very much. She really hasn't believed that I'm capable of it. And I would like to thank my students, some of my students who came out, uh, and everybody else. No, no drinking. Okay. You know what else is dangerous? Putting these beers on a slope in the sense Chug, chug, chug. <laughs> All right. You don't want the electricity. Make the beers better than the water. He has to stay hydrated. It's warmer. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to have to just put stuff over here. The beers are okay. Just the water. Is the beer okay? Yeah. This is right. a bottle. All right. Um, so... This, what I'm going to read is an um, excerpt from uh, my forthcoming novel, which is called Eternity in Love, which is a sequel to that book, The Emperor of All Things. And uh, just to give you an idea of what that is about, could, could somebody pass me a uh, Richter? Thanks. The year is 1758. England is at war. In London, evidence has come to light of the existence of a singular device, a pocket watch, rumored to possess properties that are more to do with magic than any known science. Daniel Quare, regulator with the secret worship, secretive worshipful company of clockmakers, is tasked with tracking down this sinister mechanism, but he is not alone. Enemy agents are also on his trail, and the path Quare must follow is a dangerous one, full of intrigue, betrayal, and murder. It will lead him from a world he knows and understands to another where of demigods and dragons in which nothing is as it seems, time least of all. So uh, what I'm about to read is the sequel to that. And uh, the, um, in this portion of the first chapter, one of the characters from the first book is trying to smuggle 
a uh, important artifact or mechanism out of the country. And I think that's sufficient information. <clears throat> Ahead of him, Boxer's bent and shadowed form might have belonged to a dwarf, while the glimmer of the lamplight upon the moist walls and beams made them appear to be encrusted with gold and precious jewels. The sounds of their footsteps echoed back from all sides, doubled and redoubled, until it seemed to Aylesford that they were being conducted by spirits come not to haunt, but to help ease their passage. The ground began to slope upward, and a briny breeze, faint as a breath, grew stronger and steadier as they neared the surface. A low, querulous whistle sounded from ahead, and Boxer whistled back sharply. Then Aylesford saw other lights bobbing in the dark. These resolved into five lamps set upon the ground or held in the hands of nameless men gathered in a rough-hewn cave of approximately the same dimensions as the cellar beneath the inn. Aylesford recognized his baggage and Starkey's piled to one side. He thought of Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, though there were less than half that number of men here, perhaps not even a dozen. They were all armed. Some carried muskets, others pistols, and all had cudgels tucked into their belts. What kept ye, boxer? asked the swarthy individual with a cap like boxers pulled low over his forehead. All the men were dressed alike in Monmouth caps and dark clothes. Not late, am I? replied the lad in a defensive tone. We're on the cusp of the tide, said the man, and must make haste if we're not to lose it. His eyes widened almost comically as he looked past Aylesford and caught sight of Starkey. Well, well, if it ain't me old mate Starkers. Footsie, said Starkey with evident pleasure. Good to see her. How's it hangin', mate? The source of this nickname seemed obvious as the man wore a pair of shoes fit for a giant. No complaints, he answered with a gap-toothed smile. Then, his gaze shifting to Aylesford, and you'll be Scottish Tom. Aylesford nodded. Gentlemen, said Footsie, as I told young Boxer here, we must hurry if we're to catch the tide. There be a skiff down the beach. We will conduct ye there and row ye out to the ship. Now douse your lights, men, and let's be off. The lamps were extinguished, plunging the cave into darkness. But though Aylesford was left as good as blind, the others seemed better able to see. At least, he could hear their grunts as they lifted the baggage. He felt someone take his arm. This way, Scottish Tom, said Starkey, who had the eyes of a cat. Aylesford advanced gingerly, guided by Starkey, keeping one hand raised before him to ward off any collision. But he encountered nothing and after a series of sharp turns beheld an irregular patch of gray cut from the deeper dark. Against this backdrop, he could see figures moving briskly out of the cave. Once outside, he clapped his tricorn to his head and stood a moment, letting his eyes adjust. Thick clouds covered the sky, hiding the stars and reducing the moon to a waxy smudge. Still, there was light enough to see the rock, rocky outcroppings to either side and, before him, a steep defile leading down to a wide, flat expanse. Beyond that was the broad, undulant blackness of the sea. Somewhere out there a ship was waiting. A wayward wind coursed and whistled among the rocks. Looks like you might be in for a spot of weather, said Footsie in a low voice. Aylesford started. He had not realized the man stood so near. That's to be expected this time of year, he added. I hope you have a strong stomach, Scottish Tom. It's a rough crossing and no mistake. Cannot be helped. He shrugged, his hand straying to, his reassur to the reassuring weight of the relic in his sling. Is it true what I've heard? 
Footsie continued in a lower voice, that you have the prick of James the first in that sack? Starkey choked back a laugh. You can't believe everything you hear, Footsie. What then, persisted the other. You don't want to know, said Boxer, who had come up behind them, the last to leave the cave, and now moved past without waiting for a reply. The lad's got the right of it, said Starkey. I wish, I wish I did not know myself. Halesford grunted, feeling that there was something disrespectful, even blasphemous, in these rude references to what he carried. He set off after Boxer, following a path that zigged and zagged down the beach. Starkey and Footsie came behind. He moved with care, afraid of tripping and falling, but reached the beach without mishap. It was covered with small flat stones that glistened dully in the washed out sourceless light and crunched underfoot as the smugglers, spread out loosely now, crossed with the stiff and graceless economy of laborers engaged in rote work. The leading group had already reached the skiff, whose shape was just visible at the limits of Aylesford's vision, looming like a lone boulder or some monstrous fish belched up onto the shore. The wind was stronger, blowing in from the sea and bearing a misty freight. Aylesford's face was wet, his clothes damp. Everything had a watery aspect to it, the air, the light, even the beach, whose stony carpet shifted beneath Aylesford's boots, sucking at his heels as he lurched and stumbled toward the skiff, his progress frustratingly slow compared to that of the others. Boxer had moved far ahead, as had Footsie, and even Starkey loped by with apparent ease, offering a whispered exhortation to hurry up as he passed. Aylesford bit, bit back an angry retort and redoubled his efforts. In the course of doing so, his scabbard became entangled between his legs, and before he could grasp what was happening, he had fallen heavily. The breath was knocked out of him, and it was a moment before he was able to push himself up onto all fours. He shook his head, half dazed. His chin throbbed as if he'd been punched in the face. The others were far ahead now. He groped for his hat and set it back in place, then began to rise when a voice from up ahead and to his left called loudly, Stand fast in the name of the king. Bright lights flared at the same instant, and torches sprang to life, revealing a group of armed redcoats. It seemed to Aylesford that they had materialized out of thin air. Their muskets were pointed toward the smugglers, who immediately dropped to the beach and, without a word, began firing their guns. The soldiers stood their ground, responding to the ragged shots with a practiced volley at the command of their leader. The noise was deafening. Aylesford had no firearm of his own, only his sword, useless in these circumstances. He did not know whether to push ahead or retreat. Neither option seemed promising, yet neither could he stay put. Though he had fallen far enough behind to be out of the thick of the fire, he could hear the whistle of errant shots coming too close for comfort. The torches had been extinguished after the first volley, and the beach was dark again, save for the flash of each weapon's discharge. He remained kneeling, painfully aware of the stones digging into his knees, mesmerized by these deadly flowerings. The air reeked of gunpowder. Shouted commands mingled with the screams and moans of wounded men. It was another light that broke the spell. A soft blue glow drew his eyes downward to the sling. Quare's severed hand, or perhaps only the hunter it held, was glowing. It must have been very bright indeed, he thought, to be visible through the densely woven cloth. But visible it was, a stark and shining silhouette. Rain pattered the sling, one drop, then another, and another, 
Or, no, not rain, he realized. The hand he raised to his chin came back bloody. He had cut himself in his fall. It occurred to Aylesford belatedly that the light must be visible to the soldiers as well, making him a target. And at this realization, he turned away and clambered awkwardly to his feet, trying to shield the glow with his hands. The light spilled past his fingers like water. He felt an urge now to approach nearer to the battle, a fierce and undeniable hunger. He did not question whether this was his own desire or a compulsion laid upon him by the relic. There was no difference between himself and what he carried. He felt flooded with power and importance, certain that no musket ball could touch him, or, if it did, cause him any harm. He was hard as iron. He pulled his hands away from the cloth, no longer concerned with covering up the shine, but instead eager to bear it entirely. Why, he would remove the severed hand and carry it upraised before him into battle like a standard. You've led me a merry chase, Thomas Aylesford. He did not know which he became aware of first, the gruff voice or the figure to whom that voice belonged. The figure was suddenly there in front of him as if conjured by the blue light, tall, though not quite as tall as he, slender, dressed cap a pied in gray, fingers hidden by a gray mask, and holding a rapier in his gray-gloved right hand, point angled downward, like an invitation for him to draw his own blade. He accepted the invitation with a grin, glad to have a target within reach at last. Is it the famous Grimalkin I have the honor o' addressin'? I have been called by that name. The flick of a wrist brought the rapier into line. You have something that belongs to me. That's rich, he said, coming from a thief. Thief or not, I will have it back. Aylesford's grin sharpened as he took his stance. He had noticed that Grimalkin's blade was shorter than his own. Indeed, it was shorter than any rapier he had seen, almost as though it were a child's weapon. He did not see what possible advantage this might confer, though he was wary of Grimalkin's reputation as a swordsman and counseled himself to caution. Come take it, he said, if you can. The light from the relic seemed to encase the moment in ice. Aylesford felt as if he and his opponent stood frozen in time, far from the beach and the battle being fought there. The two of them whisked away to some private dueling ground, entirely otherwhere. He did not attack, but waited for Grimalkin to make the first move. He was not confident of his footing, though he trusted the speed of his reflexes to make up for any difficulties in that regard. He had crossed swords with only a handful of men whose artistry with the blade surpassed his own. But even among that select group, he had never encountered anyone faster than he was, and, once a certain level of swordsmanship had been attained, speed made all the difference. So it was with something like disbelief that he found himself hard-pressed to counter an attack that came at him in a style he had never seen before, with a speed beyond anything he had imagined possible. Grimalkin fought like a dervish, using his legs to kick as well as to maneuver. The short rapier that Aylesford had regarded with condescension, if not outright scorn, proved quite long enough to come within a hair's breadth, obscuring him twice in the first flurried exchange in which it took every bit of his skill to parry what the other man threw at him. There was no chance for a riposte of his own. He staggered back, trying to put some distance between himself and the demon that faced him. Grimalkin paused. Above the mask, gray eyes glittered coldly in the blue light. You're bleeding, Mr. Aylesford. The voice was measured, calm. Not from any touch of yours, he replied, already breathing heavily. 
Grimalkin, he noted, was not winded in the least. Not yet, said Grimalkin. This time the, the attack was even more outlandish. He tumbled forward like an acrobat and came up in a spray of stones. Aylesford, briefly blinded by the unexpected barrage, thrust toward the spot where he judged Grimalkin's trajectory would take him. But he judged wrongly, it seemed, for he encountered nothing, then felt a whistle of air past his face and another, followed by a shock to the wrist of his sword arm that caused him to drop his blade. Step away and I will spare your life, said Grimalkin, which is more than you did for those men in London. Aylesford's vision cleared. Grimalkin stood a few steps away, ready to resume his attack. Aylesford's sword lay upon the beach, too far to easily recover, and even if he could have reached it, his right hand was numb from Grimalkin's blow and could not have picked it up, much less wielded it. The sling no longer hung about his neck, but lay at his feet. All of this has happened more quickly than Aylesford could understand, as if the intervals of time, however brief, that perforce separated the distinct actions of any duel had been snipped away somehow, and the actions then knit back together seamlessly. Not even in his earliest bouts of training had he been so thoroughly bested. Perhaps if he had been able to watch Grimalkin in action against another foe, he might have seen better how to respond to his unorthodox style of fencing. I will not ask again, said Grimalkin. Why should you spare me, asked Aylesford to buy some time. He clutched his right hand in his left, trying to wring some feeling back into it. I would not willingly consign any man to the eternity of torment, awaiting all who die in proximity to that cursed watch. Already it has a claim upon you. What is left of your life will be warped by a longing that can never be fulfilled, but that, but that suffering will at least have an end. Now, step back, sir, or you will learn that there are fates worse than death. Aylesford felt he would rather die than be parted from the relic and the eternity that had been promised him, an eternity filled not with torment, but love. Help me, he prayed silently, fervently, to the God within the machine. Let me not fail here before our work has even begun. Help me, that I may serve you now and forever. So be it, said Grimalkin. But then, even as he began a lunge that Aylesford knew must prove fatal, stopped short. His head came up as if he had heard a sudden disconcerting sound, a call that could not be denied. Yet Aylesford heard nothing. No, came the thief's voice, sounding very different now than it had a moment ago, pitched to a higher register and filled with angry frustration. Not now! Aylesford saw his chance and took it, diving for his blade. His right hand was still useless, but he grabbed the hilt of the rapier with his left. He had trained himself to fight with either hand, though not with equal effectiveness. If he had not been able to contest Grimalkin right-handed, he knew that he would fare no better with his left, but he might at least die with a sword in hand. That was something. He rolled to his feet, hat lost in the tumble, rapier raised to parry an attack that didn't come. Had his adversary slipped behind him, he whipped around, but saw nothing. Grimalkin was gone, and not merely gone. It was as if the man had vanished into thin air. There was only the empty stretch of beach and the sack containing the relic, whose glow, he noted, seemed brighter than ever. He rushed to it and picked it up, no longer filled with the desire to display it openly, but rather wishing only to keep it hidden and safe. He tucked it beneath his cloak, where the glow was entirely muffled. The fight was still going on up the beach. During his encounter with Grimalkin, he had all but forgotten it. He had heard nothing, seen nothing, save for his gray-cloaked adversary. But now that the thief was gone, 
The sights and sounds of the skirmish came rushing back. The gunfire had grown more ragged, the shouts and screams less frequent. Still, it was plain to Aylesford that the battle had moved to a new phase, though in fact it seemed less a battle now than a brawl, dark figures grappling hand to hand in the night, shadow against shadow. Footsteps came crunching toward him across the beach. Aylesford took his stance, sword ready. He still did not trust his right hand, but his left should be more than sufficient to deal with any of these men. But then he heard Starkey's voice. Put up your sword, it's me. Aylesford dropped his guard as Starkey reached him. Boxer was with him. What are you waiting for? A bloomin' invitation, hissed Starkey. Sword in hand, we have been betrayed, it seems, but we ain't caught yet, come quick. With that, Starkey took hold of one arm, Boxer the other, and together they hustled him toward the skiff. Aylesford stumbled along between them. He could feel the relic between, beneath his coat, and though he could not see it, it seemed to him that it was still shining, its blue light penetrating the intervening layers of cloth to reach his skin, then piercing that as well, seeping into his blood, his very bones, until he, too, was shining, shining like a cold blue star. Could no one see it? He had prayed for help, and his prayers had been answered. He felt drunk with joy and power. The fighting going on around him, for he was in the thick of it now, seemed ridiculous, a war of witless ants. Rain had begun to fall, and lightning flickered, revealing stark tableaus of men thrusting with swords, swinging pistols and muskets like clubs, grappling upon the beach. The air reeked of gunpowder and blood. Aylesford felt the hunter's hunger as if it were his own. These men were his to take. Their souls were his to claim. Their blood, his to drink. All he needed to do was remove the relic from its bundle and the harvesting would begin. But alongside the hunger, he felt the countervailing restraint of an iron will, and he knew that this was neither the time nor the place for such an unveiling, that his moment was yet to come, and that he must wait until he was safely across the channel, where the vast battlefield of Europe would yield a harvest beyond measure. Laughter bubbled up from his core. Hiss, came Boxer's voice. Quiet, thunder roared. Or no, not thunder, but a pistol at close range. Boxer screamed shrilly like a goat and fell. Starkey, without pausing, smoothly skewered the redcoat who had fired and dragged Aylesford on. Aylesford looked back, saw Boxer sitting on the beach, mouth open in a silent wail, one arm upraised as if in mute appeal to the lightning flash that illuminated him. At the end of that arm was the bloody pulp of what had been a hand. They will have to find a new name for him now, Aylesford thought, and laughed again. Are you mad, demanded Starkey, and without waiting for an answer, thrust him bodily into the skiff. Aylesford fell heavily, striking his chin on one of the wooden benches of the boat. Dazed, bleeding again, he lay between two benches for a moment, his sword knocked loose, clutching the relic to his body more tightly than ever, as if it were not Quare's severed hand, but his own. He felt the skiff slide across the loose stones of the beach, then a sudden rocking as the boat entered the water. He heard shouts, splashing, and then felt the boat lurch again as, man, as men clambered aboard. Starkey was among them. Row, lads, he cried. Row for your bloody lives. There were four men in addition to Starkey and Aylesford. They grabbed oars and began to pull for all they were worth. Aylesford, who had by now gathered his wits and his sword, the latter of which he'd returned almost instinctively to its scabbard, took an oar himself and joined in the general labor, the relic tucked, be 
between his feet. The skiff shot forward. Well, that were a right bollocks, came the voice of Footsie. A few shots pursued them, but no one was struck. Aylesford feared there would be a customs ship waiting nearby to take them into custody, but they appeared to be alone on the water. That's it. I think the thumping upstairs added a little extra resonance to that story. I don't know what you think. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you all for coming. Like we said before, there are books for sale in the back. Eileen's book in the back. Paul's book up here. Buy a book, get it signed, and uh, we'll see you next month. And stick around, have some drinks too. See you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, Sandra Martinez for her audio editing, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.